Well, we met in uh, Brookings, South Dakota, attending South Dakota State University in 1982. And we were married three years later in March of 1985 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. After we moved to, to Rapid City, we have uh, really enjoyed raising a family with five children. But in between that time, we had some setbacks. We had a daughter that was born that passed away, and then we also had a uh, miscarriage before Reagan was born. And our daughter and, that passed away's name was Kara. Yes, and so we've had a, a mixed bag of, uh, of experiences as, as we've lived, lived through our marriage together and had challenges, and, and we felt that that has made us stronger, you know, bringing God into it as, as we've had challenges. Uh, we've been attending Fountain Springs Church for probably about four years now, something like that, and that coincides with about the time that, that Julie had, had left the, the teaching business, and then we have felt a need, a bit of a void there in, in trying to figure out what we really want to do and what we want to get out of life, and hence we embarked on <clears throat> doing care. some training with... And, and then obtaining a foster care license and then we jumped in with both feet. And uh, so that has really brought us to, you know, the connection with, with children that, that are in need in the community. Well, as a child, I always wanted to have a lot of, a lot of children and growing up, wanting to be a mother, having my family, working with special needs students that sometimes kind of fell through the cracks and kind of being motherly to them when they were, they were at school. I, I actually had children that were in foster care that were in my class, so I knew some of what they were going through also. But that's just one more thing that really solidified the need to come out of our comfort zone, open our home, and allow other children that, that need us to come and live with us. Now we became licensed at the beginning of August in 2015. We were uh, kind of surprised uh, to receive our license at that time because we were told the process would probably take longer, but there was a huge need at the time, and so they rushed through our licensing process and got us certified, and the day that we got certified, uh, we had a placement of five children that came into our house. It was truly a, a unique experience having children that, that uh, you know, had, had less boundaries and had different, a complete different background than what we were used to. and. And uh, we embraced them, and we have, have had three of those children with us ever since that time. And also since that time, we have uh, had about 80 other children that we've hosted in our house uh, through in foster care, a lot of them through emergency services and such. Uh, so we've brought a, a lot of children into our house, cared for them. And we find that the unconditional love just really goes a long ways with each and every one of those children. And one thing that we hear a lot from people is they say to us, um, well, I could never be a foster parent. I couldn't give them back. I couldn't, I couldn't let them move on. But foster care is about reunification. It's about our community coming together, our church community, our, our, and, and helping these parents heal so that these kids can go home. If we didn't take that risk, I, I'm not afraid to grieve, but I am afraid of what would happen if people didn't take the risk to step out and love these children. And we 
are strong believers that, you know, God called us to, to come in and, and step up and help these kids. And, and there will come a time when we won't have children in our home, but we will still be involved with foster care. God tells us to be his hands and feet, and what better way for us to be his hands and feet is to care for God's children because the children that we bring into our home are his children. They're our children as a society. Um, so we, we feel really strongly that we need to step up. Uh, not necessarily every person needs to be a foster parent, but there are things that we can do as a community can, to connect with children that are in foster care, whether it be embrace a family that has children in their home or um, be a Sunday school teacher and help them um, through, through that. Some of these children that come into our home are traumatized and to come into a church that is welcoming and um, loving to them, not even knowing their situation, but um, is welcoming to them is, is huge for us. And that's one of the reasons why um, we feel very comfortable bringing our children into uh, to Fountain Springs is because they've always been welcome here. To know that they can come here, it's like our safe place for these children. I think their story is beautiful. Uh, if, if you pay attention uh, through the whole time, you, you get a bit inspired as you just listen to the difference that they've made. You, you perhaps, if you've missed it, let me bring it up. Uh, you probably caught when they decided to be foster parents and literally when they were approved, uh, five, five kids right, right then and there. And for some of us, you're like, whoa. I mean, that's, that's a bit, that's awesome and inspiring, but, it, but also at the, you walk that out, you're like, I don't know if I could do that. And then you even hear another number. If you missed it, I'll bring it up. Uh, 80, 80 kids in, in just over three years that they've been able to, to bring in. And I think, I think the way you and I think, if we think similarly, that we hear a story that's inspiring, but also there's a little bit of like, we don't feel as good about ourselves anymore. And there's a little bit like, huh. but I, see, that's why I love what Julie said. I, maybe you didn't catch it either. M maybe you didn't catch what Julie said. She said, not everyone should be a foster parent, but everyone can make a difference in it. So we as a church, this is, this is tugged at our hearts, and I just want you to know that perhaps you've heard about the Kids Matter offering. Every Christmas, we as a church do a special offering above and beyond what we all normally give, and we take that offering and we use it in a place that's very specific. This year, Kids Matter. This year, when you give to the Kids Matter offering, and by the way, it's a time frame, whether you like it or not, it's between now and the end of the year. If you wait till past the end of the year, you don't get to participate in it. It's, it's a time frame because there's organizations that need some support. So one of them is, if you give to it, you will help support organizations currently involved in foster care. If you don't know this, they don't have enough money to facilitate training and support like what needs to happen. Now I know, I know, some of us are like, well, the government should give them more money. Well, I would tell you the church should give more money too. We should be a part of helping families and organizations who are doing good like this. Let's help out. So the kids offering will go to that. You need to go to other things too that will help kids. At the West location, we need to replace some things that are broken in the kids' ministry. Now, some of you, you're from South Dakota. You are a good South Dakotan. You're like, fix it. Have you duct taped it yet? Yes, <laughs> we've duct taped it. 
It's time. It's time to replace it. At the east location, if you don't know this, the east location, uh, we, we need some more square footage because here's the good, awesome problem. We have a ton of kids. A ton of kids coming to hear who Jesus is, and so we've got to actually add square footage, rip up some walls and add some new ones and fix some space so the kids who, who want to hear who Jesus is don't have to be turned away. So that Kids Matter offering, you've heard about it, now you know about it, and now you know exactly where it's going to. We need, we need to put together in a pot $200,000 to fix all that needs to be fixed. And so... You and I are going to give gifts to people that we really care about. Let's make sure we give a gift towards the Kids Matter offering. Okay, got it? Got it? Understand? Uh, I'll just imagine that that's all landing. Okay, so we as a church are going to give, but that's not the only thing I'm asking. And yeah, I'm asking. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite. We have Christmas services. If you don't know that we have Christmas services, uh, this should be your kind reminder. We have Christmas services. I don't know what you got planned for Christmas. Uh, as a church, if you call this your church, you can say, we plan for Christmas 13 services. We're going to offer 13 services all throughout next week and even into Christmas Eve. Now, now, here's what I want you to consider. Just like kids matter, anyone and everyone matters. We as a church believe that. So here's my challenge for you this Christmas. Invite one person. Invite one person to Christmas. Someone that you know needs, needs a needs to understand how valuable they are according to God. I imagine you know someone that that would fit really well for. So think of the person, invite them. If you need to blame someone, blame me. Say, my pastor's making me do this. He's a jerk, whatever. So I, and, and, and don't worry, they won't hate you for it, but I encourage you to invite someone. We're going to have a blast together. I will share about who Jesus is. We will celebrate. It will be fun, and I hope you'll be a part of it. By the way, you need to get tickets. Yep, they're free. But if you want a seat, you need to get a ticket uh, so that you're guaranteed a seat. Uh, and just go online and do that. If you don't know what the internet is, you can go to Next Steps and they'll help you know what the internet is. And we'll get tickets. Okay. Now let's finish our series called Christmas Feels. For those of you who don't like talking about your feelings, I will not make you talk about your feelings. But here's what I want us to address is that in this Christmas season, because it's almost here, that we're all feeling stuff. Good or bad, but you're feeling stuff. And many times when we go into Christmas, we want to feel peace and joy and happiness, but we don't, so we fake it, and we arrive to the moment, and our hearts are still broken, or there's still issues, so we pretend and we pretend, yet you and I don't like people who pretend or fake it, do we? So we as a church have said, you know, does the Christmas story talk about the things that we feel? Let me go more personal. Here's the question. Here's the question we've been leveraging. What do we do when life doesn't go our way? I imagine if I made you raise your hands, like, has life ever not gone your way? Most of them be like, yep, 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 yep. Right. I imagine you've had a moment in your life where it just didn't go your way, where you're upset, and then you bring it into a season like Christmas where you're like, this is supposed to be fun, and it's not. If you've ever been there, you know that it hurts when life doesn't go your way typically. You don't like it. We all have respond differently. Do you know the Christmas story is all about this? The Christmas story, when the reason Jesus came was to help heal our broken hearts, which is what typically what happens when life doesn't go our way. Here's the verse that, that comes out of this. this. Jesus read this in church. He was in church, and they're like, hey, why don't you read whatever you want to read? He reads this. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus is reading this. It was written in Isaiah, the Old Testament. He reads it with what we now call the New Testament. And he's like, hey, guess what? I have been sent, in essence, to heal the brokenhearted. I've been sent. Christmas. The arrival of Jesus. Christmas is all about your broken heart. I find it fascinating that at Christmas we often fake that we, everything's great. Let's not do that. So if you've been around, you know that we've gone after some things that have been pretty tense. Just if you wonder, does David know that it's been <clears throat> kind of tense the past couple weeks? Yes, I do know. We've talked about, if you haven't been here, the, the broken heart that comes when you lose someone. What do you do when you lose someone? What do you do when someone hurts you? This week, I want to talk about something that will be very personal with you. What do you do when you have to say, I screwed up? Now here, I need your participation here because you're looking at me like, hmm, I sure hope someone hears this. So let me, let me help. If you have ever screwed up, would you please raise your hand? Okay, just look around. Just, okay. Just so, we're, just so we're certain, this is not for the person next to you. This is for you. Some of you are like, can we, put, can we do all of, can, can I just put my hand up the whole sermon? All of us have had moments, right? We've had moments where we've screwed up. We, we've hurt someone else or we've betrayed someone or we've not done what we should have done and, and we've screwed up. Right? We, just so you know, we're all, on, we're all on the same level right now. In fact, I thought it might help us. I mean, I've got stories. I've got too many stories, stories that I will never share with you, but I'll share with one, one particular. Uh, I remember uh, when I grew up middle school, high school, and college in Indiana. In, in, in Indiana, uh, we, we had an awesome house, but what was cool about the house was our front yard was huge. Like, you, you could hardly see the road in front of the house because the yard was so big, but we had enormous trees that filled the entire front yard. It was awesome except when I had to rake the leaves. That was horrible. But I remember growing up with this massive front yard, so I came up with a great idea that I would do very frequently because I loved playing golf. I would put golf balls in the very front right by the house and hit them towards the road. I know saying it out loud is like, that was not smart, and that problems will come from that. But at the time, I was like, this is brilliant. I did, as far as I know, I don't think I hit a car, but I have to preface that by saying as far as I know, I didn't hit a car because I would hit it and it would go through the trees on purpose, going through the trees. The trees knock it down. I go pick them up later or I mow over them, but whatever. So I, I would regularly do this. I loved playing golf. And so I would just hit balls in the front yard. Well, one day, uh, my dad said a, a friend was coming over and they were going to go do something. And so I, I, I saw the car pull up. I, I stopped hitting golf balls. For those of you like, are you a jerk? No, I'm not. So I stopped and he pulled up and came in and, and he and my dad were going to go somewhere and uh, my dad came and talked to me. He's like, hey, uh, while, while I'm gone, uh, don't hit golf balls. I'm like, okay. What I heard was, when you can't see me, you can start hitting golf balls again. <laughs> I mean, that's what, you remember as a kid? Maybe some of you still think that way. But, and so, so as soon as uh, they pulled away, uh, I'm like, Great, let's go back to this. I, I teed the ball up, and, and the first ball I hit did something that I did not know was physically possible. I did not know that you could swing through a ball that's supposed to go that way, and it do a direct turn to the right. 
I was like, I, I didn't. I mean, I knew, you could, I knew you could slice a ball and hook a ball. I, I didn't know like, it could go out like, on a cartoon and just go boom, boom and go to, this, to the right. The problem was is I did that and did not take into account that my dad's friend's Lexus was directly to the right. I didn't think it was, well, I didn't think it was an obstacle because I'm going that way. I'm not going that way. And, and I hit the ball, and it, I'm, I'm convinced God did this, but I, I, I hit the ball completely disobeying, and it, and it went directly right, and, and it, it was slow motion. You know when that happens. It's like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's go, and it goes to the right, and, and, uh, and it stopped. It, it stopped once it hit the Lexus. It stopped. It didn't go into my neighbor's yard, um, and, and it didn't hit glass. It, it, it hit like perfectly in the, in the middle of, of the door, and I, I, don't, I actually don't know what you think when you, when you screw up. So I'm just going to tell you what, what I am tempted to think when I screw up. I'm tempted to assess the damage to see, like, I mean, can I get out of this? I mean, I don't know if you ever thought that way. I'm, so so I, I did this, and I was quick to go over to try to rub it out, right? I've, I think I've seen some of you do this in parking lots where you're trying to rub this out. And, and I noticed that you, well, you can't rub out a, a, a golf ball that hits metal, and it was... There was, there was no way to lie about this. There was, it was, I don't know if you've ever been caught, as they say, caught red-handed. It was, it was like, I, uh, I'm done. And, and you know that feeling as soon as when you screw up and you, you realize there's no way out of this? Don't you immediately begin to think, why didn't I listen? Oh, I didn't have to be in this mess. Typically, after you realize I'm not getting out of this, so now you start to feel bad about yourself, don't you? You have that transition. I remember when my dad came home, I mean, I knew I couldn't get out of it. I didn't want to tell his friend what I had done. So I, I, I pulled my dad to the side and I said, hey, dad, I, uh, uh, I hit a golf ball into the car. And I saw all of the emotions begin to unfold, like through, and he's a great dad. He didn't yell at me. He, he could see it in my face that I was well aware of what I had done. And I was resonating with this was a problem. Uh, and uh, eventually, by the end of the conversation, I'm crying. I felt so bad, and I started feeling bad about myself. It's like, he's going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. This is all going to be bad. I can't afford to fix that. And I begin to kind of, I don't know if you ever just when you screw up, you just begin to kind of fall into yourself. And you begin to say, like, ah, I'm an idiot. I, how, ah, I'm so stupid for doing this. I, I, uh, I got into some trouble, as I deserved to. But this is what I want us to talk about, our screw-ups. Because I think our screw-ups... Uh, can make us feel like we're worthless. I think it, when you and I screw up, when you and I get into this moment where you, you own it, you, you recognize you're caught, or maybe you confessed, but you're like, and we begin to feel like we're worthless. If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You might even be revisiting some of the emotions. See, that, the problem is that that worthlessness will begin to make you and make you feel like you need to buy some lies about yourself, and shame begins to kind of settle in. Where not only do you feel like what you did was dumb, but you start to think that you are dumb. You start to buy into this shame thing. Let me tell you about shame, because I think it's dangerous. 
Shame says you can't be who you should be. And do you know, you know we all raised our hands, right? If I asked you to raise your hand about this, I think we all would be like, oh no. Because I think a ton of us would raise our hands going, I wonder if I can be who God actually wants me to be. I, I wonder, I wonder because of what I've done or what I've said or what I haven't done or how I've wrestled through life with the choices I've made. I, I'm, and we begin to believe that we can't. We can no longer be who we should be. Some of us, it's not your screw up, by the way. It's the screw up of someone that was close to you. Who you, you have a relationship with, you care about. They screwed up, but you took on some of the shame from it. Huh? You have been there? I've been there. Someone that you might even respected, that you were connected to, and, and they screwed up, but because, because you're related to them, or you care about them, or you spend time with them, or you work with them, all of a sudden what they did begins, that you, you let it kind of come on to you, and, and you feel their shame too. So some of us, it's not our screw up, it's someone else's, but I think we all can relate to the feeling of shame and even worthlessness in life. Now, why am I bringing this up? It's not to depress us, not to be like, well, make, thanks for making me feel even more worthless, David. No, that's not the intent. In fact, I think the Christmas story helps us heal from this feeling and these screw-ups we've had. The Christmas story, yeah. And you may not, you may not be so certain as to where I'm going to go with this. So I want to show you the Christmas story. If you've ever felt worthless, if you've ever felt a sense of shame and unworthiness, Oh, there's some good stuff. Let me show you. And there were shepherds. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Most of us remember this. Keeping watch over their flocks at night. I mean, if, if you ever have a nativity scene in your house or you see one outside, there's, there's typically always shepherds. They're kind of like the cute part of it. If you, if you ever go to a kid's Christmas pageant, come on. The kids that have to dress up like sheep, that's cute. That's like precious. And the shepherds, it's fun, and you're hoping, don't hit anybody with that giant stick, and it's all fun to watch that. And many times when we, when we think about the Christmas story, we're like, cool, shepherds. Do you know that in, in the Christmas story, do you know who gets most of the words? The shepherds. But that's weird, and I want to tell you why it's weird. The, it's weird that the shepherds, that shepherds are even included in the Christmas story. See, let me tell you about shepherds you may not know. They were considered unworthy people, unclean people. Do you know that shepherds, when it was time to, uh, to register, most of us, you know, the, the Christmas story starts off, hey, there's a census, and people are coming to town to register, to say, hey, here's, here's my name, my family's name, we're registering. Uh, the shepherds were not included. They were seen as unworthy people. In fact, do you know that if a shepherd witnessed a crime, you could not invite that shepherd to come be a witness in the court because they were seen as lower, worthless people. So if a shepherd saw someone stealing from you, 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 you couldn't do anything about it because you couldn't bring him in. And in fact, even worse, they could never testify in court. They, they were considered outcasts, rejects. In fact, oftentimes shepherds would come to town and try to talk to people and do business. And people would be like, don't talk to me. You're gross. You're unclean. Now, some of it was literal, by the way, literal. I mean, they, they raised sheep out in the middle of nowhere. They didn't have access to showers and stuff like that. So, so they were very dirty over and over. And you're working with sheep. I mean, do I need to tell you all the details of what was all over their hands? Probably not, right? They were literally dirty people. 
there were six, oddly enough, there were six vocations in Jewish culture that if you did one of these six vocations, you were not even considered a person. And being a shepherd was one of them. When you and I read the Christmas story, and there were shepherds living out in the fields, do you know what most people in that time would have said? So what? Why are you bringing up these losers? You know what what messes with me? Partially because of who we are. You know, we talk about we're a church, anyone and everyone is welcome. You know that shepherds couldn't go to church? They weren't allowed. They would get turned away all the time. The priests, who were a bit uh, hypocritical often, they would bathe oftentimes three times a day, sacramentally and doing all that. So then a shepherd shows up and wants to worship at the synagogue, and you know, the priest would come out and say, don't you dare come in here. Sounds a lot like our racist history, doesn't it? The shepherds. They were considered people who weren't even people. That's why I want to bring this up. Because the Christmas story talks about shepherds. When culturally it shouldn't. But it gets better. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. Just stay there for a minute. Don't miss it. I don't even know if I have to bring it up. These outcasts, these worthless human beings considered not even people couldn't vote, couldn't testify, couldn't go to church. They were rejects. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Now, I think you know the story, and you know, you know that they're about to get some news, right? The shepherds. But hopefully you're getting a little bit of a glimpse going, wait a minute, wait a minute. The shepherds shouldn't be getting the news. Have you ever given someone good news? Hopefully you have at some point in your life. Here's good news, right? And, and, and you know you pay attention to who you give the good news to and in what order. It's important. Don't break those rules, especially if you just got engaged. Don't break the rules. You're going to upset some people at the very beginning. Katie and I, most of you know, we're expecting our fourth kid. And yes, we pay attention to who gets told. If we don't tell grandma and grandpas first, there's a war that begins, right? Who you tell and in what order you tell is a big deal. We all would agree. That's current now and it was current then. Do you not find it absolutely stinking awesome that God's got news of the Savior of mankind? And yeah, uh, the mom gets told. I mean, that's good. Joseph gets told because he's about to leave her. Do you realize the first non-family members that get told about the Savior of mankind are the lowest, most unworthy people on on the planet? Isn't that beautiful? And it's on purpose. You know it's not like, well, uh, they were the closest people nearby. No. They're angels, okay? They can go anywhere and talk to whoever they want. And typically nowadays women think they're going to go to a king, a president, or something. No, they go to the shepherds, the ones who, who are ignored, who can't even go to church. And God's like, angels? Go tell them. You know it gets better than this, though. 
But the angel said to them, don't be afraid because they were freaking out because they're like, why are you talking to us? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. I underline to you because I don't want you to miss it. Do you notice what the angel says to him? I know you feel unworthy. In fact, do you know shepherds would have first heard this news? Hey, hey, there's a Savior coming, born to all people. Do you know the shepherds would have been like, oh, all people, all the other people, right? They, they don't count. They don't count on the books. They don't count to the Roman government. They don't count to other Jewish people. They're seen as nothings. So when they get here, they're like, there's a Savior? Oh, cool. These other people get a Savior. And I love how God knows this. And he says, through the angel, to you, not everyone else. They're included, but this is news for you. If you've ever felt unworthy, start liking the shepherds. If you've ever felt like you are a screw-up, like you don't matter, you or someone else has messed things up and you're like, oh my goodness, then key in on the shepherds and cozy up. Have you ever, have you ever had someone who you did not expect Show you value. It's pretty powerful if you've ever experienced it. If you've ever felt like, I don't deserve it, and you've had someone maybe forgive you, and you're like, I don't deserve this forgiveness. Have you ever had someone even an authority, maybe someone you respected, maybe even a celebrity, where you, like, you talked to them, and they talked back, and it was this special moment where you're like, you see me. Wow. It's a big deal, isn't it? Well, when I was a kid, our teacher talked to us about writing letters to the president. I don't know if you ever did that. And I remember as a kid going, oh, cool. I mean, the president probably wants to hear from me. So I wrote a letter. We wrote a letter. I don't, maybe you did this in school. You, you write a letter to the president. I'm not trying to get political. So I'm just like, oh, I wouldn't write a letter. No, get over that. This idea of writing a letter to the president. And it was a, it was a big deal. We're going to do this. It was, it was cool. And, and so we sent our letters off. And, and I, I remember getting a return one. And I was like, he, he wrote back. <clears throat> then I learned he didn't. For those of you who thought that, okay, I'm sorry not to rain on your parade, but I got a form letter back, right? It was a stamped name, and I know I'm supposed to treasure it, but it wasn't the same, right? Well, I found a story that I thought was just, I don't know, I think it's special. A kid named John, and John wrote a letter to the president, President Eisenhower, now, I wanted to show, let's see the letter, because this is not a normal letter. I don't know if you can notice it, but there's bumps around the edges and throughout this. It was written in Braille. Uh, John was a, was a young kid, and he was blind. And, and he wanted to write a letter to the president. If you want to know what the details, actually, it's, it's advice on his campaign, which I thought was awesome, uh, on what he should talk about during his campaign. This kid, okay? President of the United States typically has a, has a lot to do and very important things to do. But in this instant, President Eisenhower wrote back. Like he wrote back. And this is the letter, because that's why it's, it's, it's put into the history books in essence. You know, dear John, I, I can't tell you how pleased I was to receive the letter you wrote me recently in Braille. And he goes through how much he admires that skill. And oh, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine how that made him feel? In fact, they even interviewed John when he was an adult and were like, hey, was that a big deal? He's like, was it a big deal? It's still a big deal. He's like, I can't believe the president wrote back and acknowledged me. Now, here's why I'm telling you this. Because many of us, as we've identified, we have screwed up. And in essence, because we're in church, the thought is, when you screw up, you talk to God about your screw up. Have you ever felt like God won't respond to you, though? I have. Have you ever wondered if he's hearing you? That, that maybe you haven't lived good enough? Maybe, maybe if you could just fix some things and, and show that you're truly remorseful about the screw-up and, and you start doing things better and better and better and better and better and better, and better that, that maybe he would respond to you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think that you're such a screw-up that, that your, your prayers are just going to a staff. <laughs> They're not quite making it to him. If you've ever felt that way, it's normal and it's unfortunate. See, many of us, when we screw up, we buy these lies about ourselves going, well, I screwed up, so I got I to gotta take a break. I got to put this whole God thing on pause till I earn back my position. Because you know that's how we treat each other. So we project that on the God. Hmm. If you've ever felt like you can't engage God, talk to God because you're not worthy, it's because you're being accused. The devil is even given the title, the accuser. He'll tell things about you that complete lies. Let me show you something in the Bible. A lot of people stay away from the book of Revelation because it freaks them out. Uh, don't. It's, it's good. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. This is talking about Satan. I wonder if you, have, in the midst of your screw up, you accepted the accusation that you aren't worth anything. You see, when we screw up, we feel guilt. But we let that guilt, when we buy the lies, turn into shame. If you don't know the difference between guilt and shame, I want to show you this. Guilt, uh, I did something bad. All of us have already confessed. It might be on videotape. Uh, I did something bad, right? Shame says, I am bad. See the difference? I created a problem. Shame says, I am the problem. I made a mistake. Shame says, I, I am a mistake. Can we? Are we willing to be truthful enough right now that some of us, not our screw up, when someone else screws up in our lives, we push them to shame? Is that not what the church is even known for? That when someone screws up, we're like, oh, I know you feel guilty. And I'm pushing you over here. The church is known for shooting its wounded. Sometimes it's not you who wanted to go to shame. Someone pushed you there. I would tell you what we do with the guilt in our life is a big deal. What you choose to do with when you do something bad, when you create a problem, when you make a mistake, what you do with this, what you do with this is a big, big deal. Because sometimes we ourselves walk over to shame. We make that choice ourselves. We just go over there and we own it. And we're like, we live that way. And we live in that shame. And it breaks our heart. And we stay brokenhearted. Some of us, we encourage people to go there. And we need to stop that, okay? We need to be a kind of a church that says, we don't want you ending up living a life of shame. Guilt's not a bad thing, I don't think. You do something you shouldn't do. 
Guilt's a gift. Going, hey, don't do that again. But some of us bought shame. We went over to shame. And let me teach you something theologically about shame. Shame never comes from God. Ever, 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 ever. Never comes from God. God, God's not going to shame you because shame will, shame will jeopardize your identity. It'll make you think something about yourself that you never should have thought. And God wants you to know your identity in him. So how do we fight this? If you have stayed, maybe you pushed someone over to shame or you've, you've just moved yourself into shame and that's how you live and you live this broken heart all rooted in your screw-up or someone else's screw-up, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Well, I think there's still more to learn from the shepherds. There, there's more about the shepherds. It's not just about, oh, oh, I love the shepherds because they felt worthless and I feel worthless sometimes, so I like them. I'll hang out with them. It's more than that. Here's what we believe historically. If you don't know your geography, let me share it with you. Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the synagogue was, where they worshipped, is really close to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. You've sung the song, right? You know that's where Jesus was born, Bethlehem. They're close to each other. You can see Jerusalem from Bethlehem. They're close. So what we believe is Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We know that. And so nearby, you remember the scripture says nearby, Shepherds were visited, correct? I'm just, just taking you in history. Nearby, they go to shepherds. So that what we believe is those shepherds were in and around Bethlehem. Well, I can tell you about the shepherds in Bethlehem. They did a, a very unique job. They not only watched over the sheep, raised the sheep, that they had that job, but those sheep were special sheep. They were raised up to be taken over to the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed for people's sins. These shepherds weren't just raising sheep for for food, it is believed and it's logical that the shepherds that were visited were the shepherds that, yes, they were outcasts, but they were raising the sacrificial sheep. Hmm. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, uh, you keep saying the word sacrifice, and that's intense. And I understand. Let me show you what the Bible teaches us. In fact, according to the law of Moses, the law, they were following the law, this was the law, uh, nearly everything was purified with blood. At first you're like, that doesn't purify anything. Purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, if you read other places in the Bible, what we learn is sin leads to death. The only way to get forgiveness is there has to be a sacrifice, and the blood was the proof that a sacrifice, a death had happened. So for centuries, when you went to church and you had sin that week, you didn't tell anybody yet, but you're, you have to get your sins forgiven. Jesus didn't exist yet on planet earth. And so they would bring a sheep, a perfect sheep, their best sheep. They'd bring it to church basically. And that sheep would get sacrificed. The blood would be shed and the priest would say, hey, you're now forgiven of your sins. That's how the law worked. Do you not find it ironic that the shepherds who are raising the sheep to be sacrificed to absolve people of their sins weren't even allowed to go to church? Is that not one of the most hypocritical things that could even happen? They're raising the sheep up. They take it to the temple. They can't go into the temple and synagogue at all. But they're raising sheep that will cover people's sins. What does this have to do with you and I when we screw up? 
Well, Jesus changed everything. Let me show you in Romans. The law of Moses that we just talked about was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law, what was required, would be fully satisfied for us. No more sacrifices. Who no longer follow the people who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit, follow God. In other places in the Bible, it refers to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, the Lamb of God. I don't know if anyone's ever taught you this, but those shepherds, we believe, were raising sacrificial lambs, and then all of a sudden, angels show up with a whole choir, by the way. And they say, hey, shepherds who seem oh so unworthy, probably feel shame. They say, hey, we want to tell you this news. Your job is about to change. And God visited the unworthy. I don't know what you've been doing with the screw up in your life. I can tell you what I think you're doing with the screw up in your life. You're either going to shame or you're going to Jesus. You're either trying to resolve the screw up with shame. You know that's what we do oftentimes. You ever been there? Where you feel like your responsibility in the midst of your screw up is to truly feel what you have done. In other words, like where you're gonna you're gonna wallow yourself in, in the mess that you created just to prove oh what I did I know I was wrong. And, and other people will often uh, gladly help you do this, which is messy and, and jacked up too. Where when someone screws up, we're like, you better feel what you have done. We're gonna make sure you feel the shame of your action. Or in your screw-up or the screw-up of the person around you, you say, hey, we need to go to Jesus on this one. That's, you, you go to one or the other. You go to shame or you go to Jesus. And the shepherds help us understand that Jesus provided forgiveness for our screw-ups. Let me bring you back to what this whole series was about. Luke chapter 4, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Sure, we've talked about loss and someone hurting us, but I think we got to make sure we don't miss this last one. What about our own screw-ups that have broken our hearts or the hearts of other people? So here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I think we need to have a conversation, a time with God. I don't know if you've ever confessed your screw up to God, or I don't know if it's private or maybe it's been public and I don't know what it is for you, but I want us to spend some time with God. So here's what I'm gonna do, and, and this might be a slightly out of your comfort zone, but, but I need you to trust me for a little bit. So, so I'm gonna pray for you. So here's my first ask, is would, would everyone please stand up? Would, would you just, if you're able, would you stand up with me right now? And I want, I'm gonna pray for you. I wanna pray for you. But there's an ancient tradition, an ancient practice that churches for centuries have done that I want to invite you to do should you want to do it. 
I've invited you to stand, and some of you, that's, that's just where you're going to stay put. But I grew up in a church that in these times would open up the altar. Now, whatever your view is of the altar, um, what I'm talking about, coming to the front of the stage and kneeling down to have a conversation with God, the altar. You do know on the altar is where our sins were dealt with. So I'm going to pray for you, but I wanted you to have the freedom to do something we've been doing as a church. I wanted to invite you, if you want to, to have a conversation with God that perhaps some of us want to come to the altar to kneel down to have just a private conversation with God. Maybe you're going to stay where you're at. It's up to you. It doesn't make you more spiritual one way or the other. But I know for me what's been significant, some of the most significant times in my life have when I've been, you know what, I'm going to go up to the altar and just have a time with God. So I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to have the freedom to know that I'm going to pray, we're going to sing a song. But while I pray, you're invited if you'd like to come up to the altar, kneel down, and have a conversation with God. Okay? Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for gathering us like this, for for I think intervening in our lives. God, thank you for intervening in my life, in my friends' lives. God, I believe you've, you've assembled us in a way that I think was very on purpose. In the name of Jesus, would you begin to heal our hearts that uh, have been broken because we've screwed up. God, I pray for those who are, are in the midst of, of shame, even feeling like they are worthless, that they don't matter to other people and maybe they feel like they don't matter to you. In the name of Jesus, would you take those lies and rip them out of our hearts? God, these, this, this moments, these moments we're about to have with you, would you begin to do a miracle in, in our hearts and our souls? For those of us who have broken hearts for whatever reasons, would you begin to do a work that only you can do? Would you heal our broken hearts? Help us to go into Christmas with true peace and joy. So Lord, we surrender this moment, this time to you and ask that you do your will. We love you so much and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Let's sing those words one more time. I am chosen. I am chosen, not forsaken. beloved by God and no matter what has happened in the past, no matter what mistakes have happened, you are loved by God. And we are so glad you've been with us tonight. Just a reminder, we have our Christmas services next weekend, so we'd love to see you then.